You can't do DEI without money. We didn't get here on the cheap, and we're not going to get out of it without a substantial investment of resources. But I believe there is an ROI. There's an re actual financial return of investment in planting these seeds and doing this work. That was Jimmy McMillan, Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Corporate Counsel of Penske Entertainment, including Indianapolis Motor Speedway, NTT IndyCar Series, and IMS Productions, talking about how his organization is working hard in the pit to welcome everyone to Indy 500, including more diverse audiences. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Jimmy, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Freedom Forum. Welcome to the podcast. You and I have known each other for over a decade now, and I think you literally can take credit for identifying me as legal talent when I was a law student. You've been a wonderful mentor and friend ever since, so thank you so much for being here and supporting me yet again. I bet you never thought this is where we'd end up when you found me all those years ago. I want to start by you telling our listeners a bit about some things they couldn't know about you by looking you up on online or social media. Tell us what contributed to you becoming an attorney and a motorcycle enthusiast. Well, thank you, Angela, for the opportunity to, to speak to you today. I think uh, I want to start first with, in fact, um, being here to get today with you is actually something I did anticipate <laughs> and something that I did know was going to happen. I think it's important to point out that when our relationship developed, you were already an all-star uh, at Eli Lilly. You had gone to law school. But I think the, the nature of our relationship and the reason why I'm so grateful for it is because it validates what I think we both hope to see, and that is mentors investing their time in the mentees, identifying people proactively, using all of their resources, knowledge, and skill to help them within this community so that they can develop into somebody that helps others. It's, a, it's planting a seed and then watching that tree grow and become the beautiful person that you are today that is pouring into so many other people. And that is why I'm here today. I think it's, a, it's the background of my story and it's the, the roots of the tree of where I came from. I'm from the south side of Chicago, grew up in an area called the Wild Hundreds, went to a public school called Morgan Park. My mother was a teacher. She taught special education for over 30 years. My father never worked. We grew up very modest means, if, if not anything at all. And my mom instilled some very good lessons to me about education was the way to get out. I grew up in an area that was infested with gangs, two big major gangs, uh, folks and vice lords. And my mother tried to keep me alive through all of that. Um, I actually ended up in, at 15 years old, I was in a drive-by shooting where my best friend was shot in the head. And at that time, I came home. Uh, my mother said, you can graduate and go to college early if you get the grades. So I ended up going to college at 16. Uh, shortly after that, my father, who had been abusive to me and my mother throughout our life, we had been on the run back and forth to different places throughout my life. While I was in college, he tried to shoot me in the dorm. I hid out in Detroit, Michigan, where then my brother, who was nine years older than me and went to Indiana University, came and got me at IU with nothing but the clothes on my back, helped me enroll in the IU, and then three months later, my father shot my mother three times. And so then I subsequently funked out of school uh, and went from being this academic all-star in high school to a college uh, dropout uh, in a short period of time, about two, three years. At that time, I worked at Best Buy, Firestone, worked at little odd jobs here and there, and, you know, was glad that my mother survived the shooting, but she stayed with my father and uh, had promised God if she lived, I would get back in school. And so I took independent study classes to get my associate's degree, and from there, uh, got my associate's degree, getting straight A's in those classes, wasn't allowed to go to classroom. And then finally was able to get back in school where I got straight A's and B's my first year back and straight A's my second year back. Even with that, my GPA was a 2.4 when I graduated from IU and I still wanted to go to law school. People told me that that wouldn't be possible because my GPA was so bad. You know, I tell kids, if you don't remember anything else from this story, remember this. Nobody can tell you no who doesn't make the decision. You still need to try. So I applied to nine law schools, got accepted to seven and ended up going to IU McKinney. And the rest is... What we'll talk about, I'm sure, but did extremely well in law school, ended up working for 
Kiefer McGough and then later on for Justice Frank Sullivan on the Indiana Supreme Court as his law clerk. He became like a father to me and then went on to Barnes and Thornburg two years later where I became a partner. Uh, and then on May 2nd, 2016, joined the greatest spectacle in racing and the greatest t team in late racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as senior corporate counsel. And then in 2020, after George Floyd's murder, Roger Penske named me to be chief diversity officer in addition to senior corporate counsel. And so I have two full-time jobs. So that's that kind of brings you up to speed to hear in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you for that. So, I mean, that's why I always love talking to you. Now, I know some of that story, but I didn't even know all of that story. And so I appreciate you sharing that because I think it shows, I mean, you and I are both examples of in writing, we may not be the most spectacular. You know, we're not going to necessarily knock you off your feet on paper, but when you get to know us or you give us an opportunity, we'll always show up. And I, I think that um, that speaks a lot to some of the traditional uh, parameters people are still being held account to that really doesn't reflect all the things they've truly been through. I think grit is a real thing, <laughs> and it really accounts for a whole lot of things that you can't necessarily quantify on a piece of paper. So you mentioned you're from Chicago. You and I came to Indy over two decades ago from different states. I'm a country girl from Kentucky. You just said you're a city boy from Chicago, Illinois. But we've both been able to make Indiana home, and we've both been blessed with very prosperous careers. You just talked about yours. And have been able to make real impact in our own communities. I believe that's one of the beauties and the unique benefits of Indianapolis and even Indiana as a state, that you have that ability to come here from someplace else and truly become a part of the fabric of the community, not just an outsider. Based on your experiences, can you describe some of the challenges and even some of the culture shock you may have faced in making Indiana your home? And, and what can schools and employers do to help other diverse students and employees and associates feel a sense of inclusion when they're trying to relocate here to Indiana? Thank you. It's a great question because as a mentor of so many um, individuals of color, not just in law, but across the business spectrum, our yeah. brain drain that we suffer it's absolutely staggering. There are so many folks you talk to who say, man, I had a, a fantastic employee or a fantastic supervisor who we developed and we put a lot of time into and we lost them to Texas or we lost them to North Carolina or even now losing them to Nashville. And they say, why? Um, because they're not even just losing them in Atlanta. It used to be, well, we lost them in Atlanta and Chicago, and they could live with that. But it's really hard for them to stomach that they lost them to, to, North, to Charlotte, North Carolina. And the, and the reality is that they're – as great as Indianapolis is and as proud as I am of being a Hoosier, there is sort of a mixture that has to kind of come to play, it appears, to keep talented people, whether they're white, black, blue, or brown, but particularly if they're a person of color. One is getting that person engaged in this community quickly, right? And do you have mentors and mentorship that help you network get into the right organizations, get the right opportunities so that you feel invested in Indianapolis. You feel like if you leave, you are leaving something behind that is going to be really hard to replicate somewhere else. Yeah. Everyone doesn't get that depending on the job that you're in, in part because some jobs don't require you to network. Some jobs don't require you to, to do business development as a core function. For example, if you're an engineer or if you are in some form of artistic, uh, the artistic side of marketing or social media. In fact, as we've seen since COVID, so many of your jobs are now saying you could work and do this job no matter where you're at. Right. And so if the job doesn't carry with it this sales function or this, hey, I need to get out in the community and meet my future clients and that's part of it, I see that as sometimes the pathway that, that gets folks to leave. There's obviously, I have to say it, some of the political things that go on in the state some of the messaging that's that that's sent uh, from the state house is actually counterproductive towards making our city and our state more open to people who are diverse. They hear and see things that they interpret to be 
anti-celebratory of their culture yeah. or of their perspe- perception. And the reality is we are becoming more diverse. We can't be more anti-diversity at, from, a, from a legislative perspective from our state. And it's very scary to some people who say, you know what, I can go work somewhere else where this type of thing isn't every, every legislative session. We don't have this type of thing coming up. Also, in terms of opportunity, one issue is we have a lack of corporations and businesses. So sometimes what you see is uh, someone is in one company or business and they're really kind of they're doing a fantastic job. Maybe they're up to that mid-level or supervisory level position, but they can't break the ceiling to get into the corner office or into the executive levels because there's just not enough opportunities. If they're in Chicago or New York or Dallas even, there seems to be more companies and more businesses for them to lateral up, stay in that state, stay in that environment, but lateral up into a higher level or higher ranking position. That just doesn't seem to exist here enough where people have those opportunities. Yeah. This city is also, and this state, is, is somewhat very incestuous in terms of, hey, everybody went to IU. Everybody went to Wabash. The Wabash folks take care of each other. Um, in some of the bigger cities where you're in Atlanta, where they have a strong HBCU population, there's folks of color who have that same experience, only they have it within their community and their culture. We don't have that here. Yeah. So there's still that feeling there. And a lot of folks that you see stay here, either one or both spouses have a connection to Indianapolis in some way. Parents, uh, even me in my situation, my mom moved here. I have cousins who were already here. The mother of my children, her family uh, was here at the time, and that was a big draw for us to stay. All of our resources were here. When you don't have a tie to Indiana and Indianapolis, my work as either on the recruiting committee of various organizations or as chief diversity officer has shown, it's very hard to keep you here once you start having children and you're a professional and you don't have any help. Uh, And so a lot of folks (laughs) decide, I'm going to move to wherever grandma lives, Uh, on either side so that I can be this super upwardly mobile professional and get the help that I need to be successful. We have to invest wholeheartedly in some of our homegrown talent, and we haven't done that. I I have folks who I think are very successful parents here who are in very successful careers, and when you ask them about their children and you say, do you want your child to, to come back and live in Indiana, right? You think, hey, that's exactly what I want. I want them to stay here in Indiana. I wanted my grandbabies to be here in Indiana. I've already developed a network that I'm right. ready to hand to them. And too many times I hear folks of color say, I actually want my kid to go somewhere else. I, want, I don't really care if they live in Indiana or not. You know, if they want to, that's fine, but I'm not married to it. That's striking to me mm-hmm. because the way I see business work when I, when I deal with my Caucasian and white counterparts, they are able to hand down so much value. Yeah. Not just in school, but all of the connections and networks that they've the made, yeah. they're able to hand that down. Yeah. But in our perception, there's so many folks that say, that's not valuable enough for me to really push my child hard to be here. And that is something we have to evaluate because I think that's, that's an incredible uh, incredibly telling story that those who have been successful here, I think, yeah. feel like, sometimes even as people of color or diverse members of a diverse society that they could have been more successful if they had been somewhere else, or they wonder if they could have been more successful if they had been somewhere else. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I fully appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. Cause you're starting over every time, right? The next generation doesn't have the benefit of the previous generation's wealth, gain, network, and it takes generations. I mean, that is the long-term familial wealth we've seen goes generations and generations back. We've talked a lot on this show about the challenges women, and particularly diverse women, experience in corporate environments. And a lot of that's because that's my personal experience, right? That's my vantage point. And I also do believe diverse women are truly the most unappreciated and typically the least represented in any corporate business setting. But the reality is, at least in my experience, I don't believe diverse men and particularly black men are too much higher up on the corporate food chain, particularly in organizations that are not diverse owned or that don't have a particular focus on making that happen. Um, like so many other, you know, businesses, particularly in Indiana. So I'd like to ask you, what do you believe 
are unique challenges faced by diverse men in corporate business settings, particularly in Indiana, but I think it's probably relevant all over the country. And what specifically, again, can employers do to address those issues? It's interesting that we continue to have this challenge, but it, it goes back to elementary levels of age in terms of five, six, seven-year-olds. I, I, I certainly believe that what happened or what has happened is we had a generation or several generation of women of color that were basically taught you need to be able to take care of yourself I was because worried. I don't necessarily believe or you shouldn't have faith and believe that that man is going to stay there with you because we had generations of men that for whatever reason, whether it was Vietnam, drugs, and different situations, we're not alcohol, we're not there. And the women, women, grandmothers were raising kids. And that still continues to be the case in many, how too many, far too many households. That actually generated, I think, very strong women who were determined that I have to be able to take care of myself, I have to be academically proficient, and this is my pathway out. And they were exposed, in many cases, to women that could show them how to do that, particularly on the professional side. For boys, so much emphasis is put on sports, and I believe in sports is a great way to develop a kid, it's a great way to influence a kid, but not so much is put on going into some kind of professional career, doing clerical work, typing, reading, math, even engineering at this point, you don't see that emphasis on going out and working on the car. You know, the car gets taken to the dealership now. There's not this emphasis on learning how to build or create. And so the emphasis is you got football at this time, you have wrestling at this time, you have basketball at this time, and that's going to be your pathway out. And so what do they focus on? Those things. When it comes time to now, Take a person who's basically been trained to be very active, very physically engaged, very competitive, and say, okay, calm down. Mm-hmm. Now you need to go into a work environment. A corporate business and environment. And be in a corporate business environment <laughs> that you've never seen anyone who looks like you in that corporate environment. Yeah. You've never really been exposed to that. And that, that wasn't the goal and the skills and traits that may have even gotten you through school. Sometimes that's a really hard transition, harder than maybe for some women. It also is the case that sometimes we raise our men of color with a level of empathy for what they may face and the challenges they may face without necessarily the accountability of, yes, you're going to face this, but you got to step up and make it. There are far too many households where you have great mothers who are phenomenal, and and I take nothing from from them, but they will admit that there are times when they wish they had had a father to raise their son to teach them some of the things that they were not able to teach them. Not that they didn't try to, but they may not have communicated in a way that a father would have communicated. I I coach all my son's teams at some point in time, and it is heart-wrenching to see young men play games of sports, whether it's soccer or basketball, and they look to the sideline, and their dad is not there. And I can tell you that I see it more often than not that there's moms sitting there cheering their children on. Dad is not to be found. Dad is not around. Or it's grandma bringing the kids to all the games. And that has an effect over time. And so when you see on the back end now in corporate America what you see that's it. There's also an element of isolation. I have a lot of mentees. By, by and large, I would say my mentee base is 80% women, 20% men. I make myself available to everybody. I reach out especially to men of color and say, hey, sit down and talk to me. Because some of it is ego. A lot of it is ego. That you're, and some of it is what you're taught and trained as a young person of color developing particularly young man of color you are almost brainwashed that a group of black men or a group of hispanic men who gather together is a gang it's bad you have to separate yourself from the bad seeds you are different you not them your own people will teach you that you're not them you have to do your thing on your own. Well, that's great, I guess, to get you out of high school and maybe to get you out of college. But when you get into corporate America, you can't do it on your own. Yeah, you have right. to get information and knowledge and opportunities and wisdom from others. So if you've kind of come to this place where either out of ego or shame 
or bravado, you say, well, I'm not going to ask for help. You right, know, I'm right. not going to I'm not going to go talk to this person, even though that makes me look weak. That makes me feel like I'm I got to go ask for help. Now, I'm just going to try to do it on my own. You are losing. You are not right. playing the same game that your white counterparts are, play, are playing because they're having breakfast every day. And they're having lunch every day, and they're going to golf, and they're going to church together and boat outings. And while you're trying to fight this battle by yourself, there's so many things that you're missing out on because they're not going to formally give them to you as part of a project or an assignment. Yeah. Meanwhile, I see sisters who are willing to say, wherever I can get help for from, right. I'm going to do it. And they are extremely comfortable with sitting down with you and telling you their story and asking for assistance in particular ways. And that's why I think, you know, just are some of the challenges that exist. I appreciate you articulating that because I promise you there are so many people who are hearing that for the first time who are employers or supervisors or managers of men and people of color who don't even understand that perspective or that vantage point that gives so much clarity to some of the challenges that you may be experiencing that you just can't even understand your experience because you don't know people where people come from so thank you for that so so over the years um i've watched you transition just like you've watched me i've watched you transition from your private legal practice to an in-house corporate practice that you've talked about and one that truly feeds you professionally and personally you said earlier you know i've got the best job in the world you carry yourself like it you your whole air about you, and I, again, I've known you for a long time, is just different. You seem to have balanced that or have a much more balanced blend of your work and family life where you can, you know, do more of that together and they're not so separate. What do you believe are some of the greatest lessons you learned from private practice that prepared you to be successful in your current role? Client service. You know, you, you learn that internally, client service, timeliness, effectiveness, you know, trying to be accurate, saying, being very comfortable with saying, I, I don't know, yes. but I'll find it out, uh, and not just popping off an answer. Uh, communication with your team, realizing that every person on the team is important, whether it's the secretary, the paralegal, the janitor, uh, every person it's important to treat them with the yes. respect that they deserve because you never know when that person will be an asset to you. And I mean that in every way. You never know when the security guard is going to have to be the person to let you out at, at, at one in the morning because you work late, but you treated that person mean so they're not motivated to come and help you right away. I mean, every person in your life, yeah. you have to treat with the respect that you hope that, that you want and you've earned. I think being comfortable with yourself and I think that's a challenge. You know, that's a challenge that a lot of black and Latino and diverse folks in general face, uh, particularly LGBTQ face. Mm -hmm. How do you be your authentic self? I learned from working in private practice that it's not about how. It's about you will be your authentic self whether you try to hide it or not. You know, there's a difference between modeling and trying to model professional behavior and literally going into work and putting a mask on right. that hides so much of yourself that you're either depressed, you're fake, you're not effective, and you come off as somebody that even authentic people don't want to work with or be around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned that every job is not for you, and that's okay. That's okay. Just because a job pays a whole lot of money doesn't mean it's for you. Right. I've learned that just because you are black or brown, you don't have to carry the weight of the entire black and brown community on your shoulders to be legit. Some people are meant to do diversity work, and some people are going to do it, and they're going to do it at a high level because they have the capacity to do it. Some people just do not have the capacity to do it. That's not authentic. That's not their calling, and that's fine. Yeah. I've learned that your kids are the most important thing in your life and your wife and your family, and it takes a village, if you got one, to make everything work and successful. I can only be who I am because, one, my ex-wife – is a phenomenal mother to our kids, and she's a phenomenal partner in terms of raising my kids, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for her. I learned that failing at marriage doesn't mean you have to fail at parenthood. That's exactly Just right. because you didn't get along as husband and wife doesn't mean you can't get along out in an outstanding way as parents, which we do. My mother is outstanding. Grandmothers are the greatest gift that God ever put on the face of the earth to parents, and I have probably one of the best in the world. 
and I'm thankful that she's still here to be the outstanding person that she is. My wife is absolutely spectacular, and she fits me in every way. You know, people, a lot of people know that I ride motorcycles, and you don't expect that from lawyers. My wife rides motorcycles. Uh, there are some people who would probably hide that. I'm actually the president of the largest motorcycle club in the state, and if you see me on certain days, you probably think I was in a motorcycle gang. <laughs> I don't hide that from anybody, never have. When I was at Barnes, yeah. I was the vice president of the largest motorcycle club in the state because, again, that authentic self of balance, as you talked about, is what's necessary to sustain me and make me successful at what I do. You can't, I can't be happy if I'm holding these parts of myself back because I think that's what you want. When you really get behind the curtain and you rise up to a certain level and they start having private conversations with you behind closed doors, you would be shocked at all of the different types of things that people do and they're into and they're active at. You are in love with the image of who you think they are. Right, right, when right. you find out the real them, you'll wonder, why have I been hiding myself for the last five, ten years? You have to be comfortable. This is a long life. Every day of life is precious. If COVID didn't teach us anything else, That's right. you could be here today and gone tomorrow. If you are unhappy at your job, get a new one. If you are not successful at your job and you can't turn that around, get a new one. But you have to realize being unhappy every day eventually ends very bad. Eventually, they're going to fire you. And so you need to find paths where that authentic self can match your job That's right. and you can be your, as successful as you possibly can be. There's so many people who need to hear that, right? Like who really are in a box and can't get themselves out, you know, can't give themselves the freedom to seek that balance. And oftentimes that's just out of comfort. You're comfortable. You know this job. You know the people. You know what to expect. Well, let's keep it real, Angela. Sometimes it's because they think I can't afford it. So I keep it all the way around. I took a $100,000 pay cut to leave Barnes and go to IMS. That's real because I wanted to be happy. Yeah. Happiness yeah. costs. And so there are people who can't leave and don't leave because they feel like, well, I need this car and I need this house and I'm paying for my mama's house. Sometimes you have to say, what can I cut out? Or what do I need to cut out yeah. so that I can get to my happy place? And yeah. not enough mentors say that, that, that determination is not easy but necessary because, again, you could make a lot of money, but eventually, as Absolutely. I have seen time and time again, eventually they will fire you. And when you get fired, you will make no money. <laughs> and so make, that, make the separation on your own terms and figure out what is really important. Sometimes your kid doesn't have to go to private school. Right. Sometimes you don't have to drive the most expensive car. You don't have to go to seven vacations a year on on Caribbean islands. You don't have to have a house that is 6,000 square feet. You can downsize. But too many times I've seen particularly people of color sit in situations that when you talk to them, they are absolutely miserable. Yeah. And I sit across from them saying, Okay, when is the dam going to break? Because you're gonna, they're going to let you go. So you've got to start looking, and you've got to be ready. Well, I need this amount of money. Do you? Right. Sit down, look at your bills, and decide what can you cut? What can you turn off? What do, I, do I need every cable channel that exists in, in, in man? What can I change to make my life happy? Because you cannot put a price on happiness it is absolutely priceless and there is no dollar figure to beat it and i can tell you i am extremely happy every day every dollar that i gave up at barnes i got back at ims and i'm now making more and it's because i'm more effective in my happy place yeah yeah absolutely I continue to say, I'm so thankful I wasn't an attorney all my life. You know, like, truly, it gives you a different vantage point. So I want to transition a little more to focus on your diversity work at IMS and Penske Entertainment. You've talked about how much you love, you know, motorcycles. I've known you forever. Uh, to know, to, to love motorcycles and fast cars and racing and all that. But we also know historically racing's not been a diverse sport right and and that's definitely beginning to change with even me knowing names like Bubba Wallace right and Michael Jordan getting involved and giving more visibility to the sport and getting more people who are diverse interested and in, and in getting that in front of more diverse audiences as the DNI leader of an organization whose industry is as far behind in diversity if not further than the fields that I'm used to like STEM and law 
do you feel armed and supported by your organization's management to do, to make real change in your organization, in, in its representation, the leadership, the engagement? And if so, what advice will you offer other people in a similar role who I speak with often and don't feel empowered to really make change, even though they've got the title to do so? What are your thoughts there? What do I feel? Excitement energetic, enthused, um, and that's a very personal feeling because I fell in love with racing before I got this job. Right. And, and, it, and that love for racing is actually what brought me to this job and this opportunity in this place. And it's that experience that drives me because I want to bring, I feel an obligation, I feel a dedication to bring other people of color into this sport to give them the opportunity. You know, we can do more than basketball and we can do nothing more than football. There's this whole big thing called motorsports that's available to us with jobs like being engineers, being drivers, marketing, facilities management, logistics, uh, hospitality, catering, all of these things that are available to us that we have just kind of been shut out of or have blocked ourselves out of or have opted not to be engaged in because we viewed this as white expo and a white sport. My excitement comes from someone who has not had a bad day at work or a bad second at work in motorsports and wanting others to have that same experience. We've got to broaden our opportunities for jobs and opportunities at a young age. Yep. We're, we're right now scheduled to bring over 7,000 kids from, inner, from the inner city, from IPS and charter schools, in just in the month of May alone for career exploration opportunities at the track. That wasn't happening before. To basically plant a seed with those kids every year to bring them back and grow that more and more and more so that they know there is something for me at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That's why white people come because that seed was planted over a hundred years ago in their community yeah. and never got planted for us. Yeah, yeah. And so I am super excited about that opportunity as we grow internally. So we talk about our DEI initiative. We launched it. It's, it's colloquially called the race for equality and change. It was launched in 2020 by Roger Penske and Mark miles, our leaders to basically transform the way the sport looks, feels and operates today to be more inclusive of people of color, to be more inclusive of LGBTQ, members of LGBTQ, and be more inclusive of women. Some people would be shocked to hear that 45% of the, 45% uh, of our full-time employees are women. We have, I think, four of the nine members of our leadership team are women, of our executive leadership team. Yeah. That surprises people. But when you look at our on-track product, our engineers, that's not the case. And so we have attacked this holistically. From every job, every position we have, we make an attempt to maintain or increase our diversity along all of those lines by reaching out to different organizations in a different way. We just don't post a job. We go out to different organizations like the National NBAs or NSBE or different yep. local organizations and say, we have this job in this position and we want one of your members to apply. When we get folks, we are now developing them and cultivating them in a very individualistic way, having conversations with them the same way I got developed. I'm going to sit down with lunch with you periodically. I'm going to reach out to you. I'm not going to wait for you to have a problem. I'm going to consistently ask you about your experience, and I'm also going to recommend things that are going to tie you to this job in this community. Yep. I'm going to suggest that you get awards. I'm going to make the recommendation without you coming to ask me. I'm going to try to make this as best experience as I can to keep you beyond the fact that we work for a racetrack. On the next level is MBE and WBE. We're working feverishly to grow our MBEs and WBEs. And one of the great stories I like to tell is Terry Anthony, who owns yes. the block. He is our official caterer for IMS Productions at all of our IndyCar races throughout the, throughout the country. And he came with a very diverse, innovative proposal that we didn't get from anybody else, whereby he manages food trucks different food truck suppliers, diverse food truck suppliers at our different races to supply the food and the catering. Very, very, very innovative. It's basically another great story about why diversity is important. We didn't get that from any other caterer we'd ever had. But he thinks about things differently because he is different. Right. And his energy and enthusiasm brought him to the plate, and we are now engaged with him, and he's doing an outstanding job. 
We're also working with a number of different diverse suppliers in marketing. We're working with some different diverse uh, organizations and staffing. Quest Staffing is one of our biggest staffing companies that we're working with, and he's a diverse supplier. And so that's important because you can't want people to spend money with you that you're not willing to spend money with. Next is the organizations. For people to feel included, you have to reach out to them and say, hey, we want you to have events here. Whether that's women in high tech, which Angela has been a leader in that organization forever. She held, she's held events there and hosted events there, and we love having them here every year. Or it's Indiana Black Expo's Gala, which we hosted at the track. We continue to reach out our hand and say, hey, this place belongs to you too. Can we hold a meeting for you? Can we hold an event for you? Yep. Can we have you here in the month of May? And can we host you here? And we do that consistently and constantly. Pipeline programs are important because we know, again, I said, as I said, it starts young. It starts at five and six and seven and going all the way up. We have a program that we've had at the track called NXG Youth Motorsports. It's a STEM and go-kart program. My son actually races in the program. It's run by Rod Reed. He's been the founder of the program and run it for over 16 years, and it primarily is African-American and Latino boys and girls who learn how to, between the ages of 11 and 15, to race go-kart, go-karts and work on go-karts, but there's also an educational element behind what they do. And those kids are phenomenal. We've had the program in Indianapolis and serviced about 200 kids a year. We now, this past year, expanded that full-season program to Detroit, where we have wow. a full-season go-kart program in Detroit as we continue to expand it, and we hope to move it to St. Louis and Nashville in the future. We also are supporting programs like Soapbox Derby financially and the Soapbox Derby Riverside team, which is extremely diverse and successful and helps kids think about, again, how do you build a soapbox how do you compete? Engineering skills. We also support the Nesby Purdue team, which has a Purdue go-karting team where they build their own go-karts and compete in, Nes- in Purdue's go-karting series. So we're invested in that. But again, Pipeline doesn't start, stop there. We've taken those kids, put them in internships with IndyCar where they now travel from place to place with IndyCar on a paid internship as, as people who do tech inspections, a job which has a 75% placement rate with our teams. We've seen our teams become more diverse as a result of our efforts. Right. We are starting a diversity leadership and motorsports program this summer. We just put that out where we're going to hire seven diverse interns to come in, work in different departments, but also be mentored and learn from all of the different aspects of sports we have in the city. So we're going to take them to Lucas Oil and have them with Brian Richardson, who's the DEI officer for the Coats. We're going to take them to the Pacers and have them with Corey Wilson, who is working for the, for the Pacers. We're going to take them to those different entities over the summer so we really pour into them so that they are exposed and see not just success, but success that looks like them. Yep. And so many things. We have an all-black race team that we started by Rod, uh, owned by Rod Reed, driver, and last year was Miles Rowe, who won the first IndyCar-sanctioned race uh, in New Jersey. He's, we now have moved up to Indy Lights, where Miles is still racing in USF 2000. Our Face Force Indy team is now in Indy Lights. Ernie Francis Jr., a champion, Haitian-American, is now the driver for that, that team. The engineers on that team are all African-American, and guess where they came from? NXG Youth Motorsports. Their first class. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just amazing. And I told you in the beginning I was energetic and I was enthusiastic, so I hope that you hear it. It's amazing to see this grow from what I felt like was a blank slate. And it's only possible, to be honest with you, because we have an owner in Roger Penske who is a billionaire. And he has invested his time, his, his energy, his passion, but most importantly, his resources. You can't do DEI without a budget. Right. You can't do DEI without money. We didn't get here on the cheap, and we're not going to get out of it without a substantial investment of resources. But I believe there's an ROI. There's an actual financial return of investment in planting these seeds and doing this work. You cannot tell me that if you don't, if you don't, you know, if you continue to bring these kids back every year and you continue to invest, that you're not going to make fans. You're not going to make people who want to follow this sport. You're not going to make people who are invested. You're not going to make people say, I have a connection, and I don't want to go to the basketball game, but I'm not going to miss the Indy 500. That's what happens when you care and you invest. The ROI will come, and we are already seeing sponsors who are now saying, hey, I want to sponsor not only the Speedway. I want to sponsor the Race for Equality and Change. 
Donatos and Ron Jordan, who just recently purchased all of the, all of the Donatos in Indianapolis. He is a sponsor for the Race for Equality and Change. Shell. Shell Oil is a sponsor for the Race for Equality and Change. We are starting to align with the missions of organizations yes. that care about this issue because their customers are diverse. And so those things are the things that get me excited and, and sorry about that. But I, I just see so much progress so quickly and what we can do with this track. Obviously, I'm not curing cancer uh, at the track, and, and there's an argument that I'm also not taking guns out of kids' hands. But I see it as taking a kid and motivating them to be better, yeah. showing them something that they may never have gotten to see otherwise, and maybe sparking something to them and saying, I haven't seen anything else that touched me like this, and now I'm going to study harder. Now I'm going to work harder. Yes. Now I see a path that I want to take. And far be it for us to admit and acknowledge that for 100 years, there was a whole wealth of a community, the wealth of the community that it could have been inspiring. Black people and Latino people like cars for a long time. Right, right. And we just missed all that opportunity. And now we're committed. We're not going to miss opportunities anymore. If you, if you have somebody call me, we will make a way to get that child to the track. We will make a way to feed them. We will make a way to make sure that they understand that this is an opportunity for them. What I heard from that is, A, if there is no initiative or program, you got to make something. You've got to make a program to feed the pipeline if it doesn't already exist in your organization, which oftentimes it doesn't exist in organizations. I've been doing this 20 years, and I've developed and created. I mean, that's the fun part about it for me is you get to use that creativity. But you're legitimately creating programs and events and initiatives that, to my, at least in my career, have lasted well beyond me. But to speak to so many of these things. So my point is, thank you for letting us know that in a lot of cases, there are not programs. Someone is going to have to develop something, particularly in industries and organizations where that historically has not been the case, like motorsports and law and STEM, where it just hasn't historically catered to a diverse audience and diverse pipeline. And you spoke to the ROI because, you know, you came from law. So, you know, yeah, people are invest in diversity of initiatives, but they want to know the ROI. They want to be able to speak to their CFO and say, yeah, we invested in this program or we brought these students in, but here's our ROI. And the reality is you've been blessed to see a lot of ROI very quickly. But in many places, it doesn't happen that quickly because that investment is significantly longer term, possibly. So speak to the employers who are saying, yeah, that's good, Jimmy, that you got some kids into, uh, you know, a, a go-kart program. And they're now, right, in three or four years old enough to get a job as the mechanics and the whatever. But I'm in business or I'm in, you know, accounting where you know, it doesn't start that quickly or it doesn't happen that easily. How can you convince people that the ROI is still going to happen? It's so short-sighted when people don't see the obvious answer to this question. One, we are becoming a more diverse society, period. Just by virtue of interracial marriage and interracial kids, we're becoming more diverse. We are also a global society. You, if you want your business to be successful, you should want to relate to as many potential customers right. or as many potential uh, purchasers of services and products as you can. If your employee base is monolithic in look and in thought, you are probably losing. You're, you're, you're missing out right. on different opportunities to sell your product. It's that simple. The, the ROI is when you have a diverse employee who's successful they are able to reach out in the from a company sense sometimes to another diverse in, employee in that company and say we maybe shared where we grew up we maybe shared that we like a certain show or we lurk, like a certain type of music or we want to go to a certain type of event that you would never want to go to you never want to entertain at it you never want to go to you couldn't have that conversation but they can right it it's it's the same argument that unfortunately had to be made for women to make the advances that they made that men fought against forever. That, look, you don't understand. A woman CEO 
having a conversation with you about kids may go a whole lot different than if you had a dynamic employee who was a woman who has kids. It's not that you as a man can't relate, but it's a different conversation. There's some things that they may say and how they may say it and the bond that they may make that you can't make. And so if you have this dynamic woman who's on your staff or who's on your team and she can relate and be a part of all of these associations and organizations that have been created for women to network, to be a part, and you have no woman on your team to do that, that's sad. The person who does at least has someone in the room. Right. They at least have someone at the table. There are organizations, you don't have anybody in the room who's black. So you're not going to get invited to the National Bar Association. You're not going to get invited to the National NBA uh, organization, even though it exists. But guess what? Commerce is being done there. Right. People are getting opportunities. People are being hired. And you have to think about, do we want to miss out on that? Now, in terms of development time, my mentor, Ken Inskeep, used to tell me, your career is like a farm. Some things are going to come up quick every year. Some things are going to come up every 10 years. Some things are going to come up every five years. And sometimes the crazy thing as a farmer is you don't know. (laughs) You just out there planting seeds. You know, you're from a farm. You out there planting seeds, water, (laughs) sunlight, and you're hoping and praying. And then all of a sudden you're shocked. I forgot I even planted that. (laughs) This thing came up in the middle of my beans. This, where we are today as a culture, was not, did not happen overnight. Again, you have to be patient and understand that as you plant your seeds, mm-hmm. you're going to see some quick outspurts of growth and success. But, wow, do you not know what may happen in 10 to 15 years? So many times I'm encountered by somebody who says, I need the next Jimmy McMillan to work for us. Tell me where he is. And I say, did you see Jimmy McMillan 15 years ago? Right. Did you see Jimmy McMillan 20 years? J- Justice Sullivan, when, I, when he, Justice Sullivan hired me to be a clerk, I wasn't Jimmy McMillan you see today. I was Jimmy McMillan closer to the south side of Chicago. I had went to law school, but a couple of years before that, I had flunked out of school. But he planted that seed and put water in me. Did you see the Jimmy McMillan and Ken Inskeep agreed to have lunch with me every month while I was at Barnes to talk to me about my development and, Bar- and, and Bob Grant as well? They sat and invested in me every month. I'm not the, I wasn't the Jimmy McMillan I am now. Then I was a whole lot less confident. I was a whole lot less vocal. I didn't have all the successes, but somebody took time yeah. to water and put sunlight and everything on my seed, not knowing whether there would be ROI on the back end. We have people to give up before they put the seed on the ground. Right, right. And so you have to make the commitment to, yeah, I can go the easy route and I can hire another white person, which I argue some of them need cultivation too. You just don't realize it. <laughs> One of the biggest things I hear about DEI, by the way, is, well, you think we just need to do that with black employees? We need to do it with all employees. That is one of the most universal comments I get back. Like, we know you want to do this special program, uh, but you do realize that all our employees need what you're trying to get for them. Right, right, right. You have to understand and believe the world is going the way it's going, and we're getting more diverse, and it's part of your business strategy. Not just because it's the right thing to do, because I think the right thing to do tends to fade away, unfortunately. You have to decide as part of your business strategy, I need these elements of my organization and of my team, and I need them to be as successful as possible. We are not going to miss out on any opportunity to develop just because somebody looks at us and says, you don't have anybody in your organization I can relate to. Right. That is ridiculous. And if that's the case, we've got to do something about it. Um, we've, you got to decide that we can be better, more nimble. We can get more opportunities. We can think differently. We can be broader if we're more diverse. That is important because I, I think too often in DE&I work, we're looking for the quick returns. What, you know, tell me what you did. Okay, you went to that meeting. Who'd you meet? What's the ROI? Well, I met some folks, but <laughs> I met some folks, right? That's the beginning. The seeds just being planted. And we know the relationships take time to grow. That's why that, what we started talking about initially, that generational ability to hand off networks and pass down relationships does have value, even if it's not just monetary in, in, in its uh, tangibility. In, in fairness, let me help some of the business owners with that. First of all, 
there are white people to go to meetings and don't come back with business automatically. We know that. But some are able to do that because of a simple fact. There are white people who are in power at the top and who have access to the budget and they are decision makers. They can literally say, I am going to hire you or your services now, and they don't have to go ask anybody else. Right. As we started this podcast off, I pointed out that so many people of color, while they might be successful, they are not at the top. They are not the CEO or the CFO. They are not the ultimate decision maker. So when you put seeing your person of color out to X, Y, Z event and you pay for the sponsorship or you pay for the registration, here's what you should really think. They are going out and most likely interacting and engaging with someone who's their same age in their same demographic and in the same rising position within their company and their organization, right? You're not sending them out to network with the full-grown tree. (laughs) You're sending them out to network with the plant and the seed because they're a seed. Right. And you should have the patience to know that that seed that they are probably networking with and going to dinner with is growing. If they are going to give you work or business or buy your services, they have to go up the chain and up the ladder. They have to go and get permission. They have to go and ask someone who's older who probably already has a relationship, and they have to work the magic on their end to help your person on your end. That takes time, and it's not like three weeks. Sometimes that takes several meetings. That takes a couple of layups and setups and dinners and maybe a couple of goodwill huntings or whatever, but it's going to happen. Believe me, everybody's working hard to make it happen, but it takes time, natural time, because we're not talking about typically somebody on this end who can just say, we're going to fire this law firm and hire this law firm because... I met Angela at at the uh, at the women and you know women in law uh, business. That's not generally how it works. But here's the other thing we know: dynamic people of color, time and time again, I have seen if they don't stay at the organization they are at, they end up going to another organization and they carry that relationship with them. Right. If you give up on your person too soon. You've missed your opportunity. You've missed your opportunity (laughs) because the seed was still going to grow. Right. And when the seed finally comes out of the ground and grows and they call back to your organization and say, hey, where's Angela? I really liked her. Hey, hey, I finally got it. I got authority. I got a budget. I can hire somebody. I couldn't I couldn't three years ago, but I can now. And Angela was, oh, man, I love her to death. Where is she at? Well, guess what? Angela's in-house, too. Yeah. Everybody left. That is what has happened because nobody has the patience to see or understand how this is going to play out except those of us who've done it. I see it just as clearly as possible that you've got – You just I just see firms, I see businesses, companies who miss out on opportunities to have real superstars that could generate incredible wealth, and then they come afterwards and say, we had that guy working for us. Right. Or, we had that woman right. working for us. Man, we surely missed out. Losing it. We're not going to do that again. And guess what? They do it again. Right, 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 <laughs> right. It's hard. Yeah. And, and and I do think we're all learning as we grow, right? That's the whole point of this podcast is to help people who are sincere about learning as we grow. I think some things are proven and we know they work. Some things people are figuring out and doing differently and thinking differently. You mentioned Terry Anthony. Terry Anthony's from Kentucky. That is one person that I did know before I came to Indianapolis. And the success of you two together has been awesome to watch. And I didn't know that was a national thing. I thought that was here in Indy. So Mm -hmm. that's just phenomenal. So, Jimmy, as we – As we end, I want to ask you two final questions. One, I asked you earlier about what you learned from private practice that has helped you in this current role. I now want to know what have you learned since you've been in this phase of your career that you think, um, and you've given us so many nuggets already, but that you think is important for young, diverse professionals to know, as well as non-diverse leadership or supervision. And again, you've given us many nuggets. But... As you end, I want you, what are some final things that you could drop on us that would allow both parties, right, the diverse employee or professional as well as any leadership they may encounter, to avoid some of the unnecessary pitfalls you've talked about today? We have to sometimes get out of our own head. Right. And and we have stereotypes that can be damaging 
in our own mind. You know, some of the best mentors I've had have been white. I've had some great black ones in terms of Alan Mills and Lacey Johnson and Myra Selby, and we've got some folks who I stand on their shoulders and tie in Walton Pratt. But I've had some phenomenal white ones that if I had not trusted them or allowed them to invest in my career, I would not have gotten to where I'm at. And sometimes we block those blessings. We also have to sometimes acknowledge that the job is the job. You could want the job to be something else, but the job is the job. And if you don't like the job, then that's fine, leave. But sitting in a position where you continue to say, I wish the job was something else um, and it should be something else, probably is not going to happen. I I joke with people. I often used to go in a law firm and think, what if this job, what if everybody who was white was black? And what if everybody who was black was white? What would my experience be like? How would my conversations be like? How would communication be? How easy would it be to develop work? What would my review of my projects be like? I literally would sit up and fantasize about that. That's what it is. It's a fantasy. That's not the reality of what the firm is. You could go make it your reality if you want to start your own law firm, but sometimes you have to accept this is the job. These are the requirements of the job. This um, This is what success looks like. This is what they pay on, and whether you, from an authentic, authentic place, from, a, from a, a, a real place, are ready to accept, despite what the pay is, what the requirements are, the job are, and can be successful in that. I think that's important. I think we have to all know going in where we want to be in five years or ten years, where we are in our career. Some people, I, I have no other way to put it, but work is not that important to you. Family is more important to you. Being a dad, um, being a mom, taking care of an elderly relative, that's what's important to you. And sometimes the things that you're experiencing are not a result of the job. They're a result of you're not drinking the Kool-Aid. Everyone else is geared to performance. And you're geared to performance, but it's not performance there. Uh, If you're going through family issues at home with your wife, that can affect performance. If you're going through things with your child, maybe your child's acting up, that can affect performance. Yeah. And you've got to decide whether this works. And that goes for all people, actually, whether you're diverse or not. But sometimes when you're diverse, you're less vocal about it. You, yeah. You're even more willing. You feel even more obligation to put a mask up and hide. And yeah. Like, I can't talk to anybody. Nobody understands me. Nobody in my family understands me. I just got to push through it because... I'm the first person in my family to make this much money. I'm the first person in my family to do this, and I'm carrying not only my family but the whole city. Sometimes you got to be real about that. Yeah. I think what I would say to employers of diverse talent is see this as something that, yes, it is the right thing to do. It's something in your heart that you want to do. Be comfortable with the fact that you may make mistakes, but come back to the table and keep trying. You may not say everything perfectly. Right. You may not do everything right, but continue to communicate and stay dedicated to it, and it will work out. Every person of color is not going to be successful in your organization. Every woman is not going to be successful in your organization. Every white person is not going to be successful in your organization. And that's okay. It does not mean your entire DEI effort is a failure. Right, right. And you get rid of it because you lost some people. Right. You analyze it. You see if the reason why you lost that person was because of a failure. And you address it. You don't say, I'm just done. I'm never going to try again. As if you're jilted from a divorce and you're like, I really love this person and they were the greatest person ever and they left us and I offered them the world and I can't believe it. I'm through. I can't take that pain anymore of losing (laughs) my diverse employee and I'm just never going to go through it again. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes you have created and invested and developed in a diverse employee that much like that farm, you're going to feed thousands it what that crop wasn't meant to just feed you. Right. That right. crop you just grew is gonna feed literally thousands of people. They just not gonna feed it from your farm. Right. And you got to be confident enough and 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 actually step out of yourself enough to say that's okay. I lose mentees all the time that I have. I developed to build Indianapolis. I developed to take my place. I developed them to be in my succession plan of leadership and thought this person is gonna be the next whoever of Indianapolis and they moved and I had to swallow my pride and say, 
thank God that I was in their life at a place that I could That's develop right. them to be able to move and have that opportunity. I don't know what they're going to do 10 years from now or 20 years from now, but I know it can't just be about me. Right. It has to be about what I help them develop to in their family. So those are the things that I would say. And, and you know, there's a lot of work to be done. There's so much opportunity. My legacy, you know, I'm at a place right now that so much of what I do is about legacy. It's about wanting, I get more joy out of seeing you, Angela, at this podcast and more joy out of seeing my mentees and their mentees grow. You know, I don't, I don't really mess with people who don't miss mentor people anymore. If you don't, you know how I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm questioning you because eventually my sons who are 13, I want them to be able to walk into your office yeah. and you say, who is your daddy? And you say, is your daddy Jimmy McMillan? Tic Tac, everybody call him Tic Tac. And they go, yeah, you got Put your resume in there. I know who you are. I know what you're about. Yeah. I know what I got you. I got you on this internship. I got you on this job. I know your daddy. I know what he did for everybody. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to build. A legacy of service, a legacy of help, a legacy of development that somebody someday can walk, look back and say, you know, I wasn't doing anything to help people, but then I just... I heard him and I saw him and I said, I went back to work and said, I got to do something. Yeah. I got to do something. Yeah. I can't expect this world to change if I just keep going back in my office and all I'm doing is cashing checks. And I know that there are kids out there who need to be here next to me to see me, to hear from me, to hear my story. I know that there are kids who need an internship. You don't have to hire a thousand kids. One. Yes. That's why I think um, that's what I think I am right now, and that's what I'm motivated by. Yeah, that that's so inspiring, and you you just continue to inspire me. You are the same Jimmy I met. You just we just a little older. We have a little more position than we did, you know, ten years ago. But it's still about the same thing. It's still about pouring into others pulling people along as you climb. What we say, we lift as we climb. That's what we're doing. And so I just want to thank you for joining us today. I want to thank you for continuing to spread your wisdom, encourage people, be honest about what, where we are and where we're going. And that is not going to be easy. Thank you. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining us on this ninth episode of the Freedom Forum. And with that, we'll call it a day. Thank you so much. Have a good day, everyone.